From Hyde Park United Methodist in Tampa, Florida, this is the Bible Project 2020, a journey to reading the Bible without fear or frustration. I'm your host, Matt Hotho. This week, we're joined by Dr. Daniel Stulak, visiting assistant professor in Old Testament at Duke Divinity School in Durham, North Carolina. Daniel received a PhD in Hebrew Bible from Duke University in 2017 and has been teaching at the Divinity School since then. His interest is in the intersection of agrarian practices and scripture. Before going to seminary, he had what he calls an ecological awakening through reading the works of Wendell Berry. He trained at ECHO, the Educational Concerns for Hunger Organization here in Florida, and then did agricultural missions in Rwanda before going to Princeton. Daniel is married to his wife, Danielle, and they have a 13-month-old daughter, Abigail. Daniel's latest work has been on the Book of Kings, with a volume due to be published in 2021, entitled Life, Land, and Elijah in the Book of Kings. This episode begins with a summary of the readings from Chris Hockman, and then the interview jumps right into big topics with Daniel questioning the practicality of dating compositional layers in the Book of Kings before moving on to a rich discussion on the theological thrust of the Book of Kings for the implied audience of the original authors. Many of my assumptions about the Book of Kings and the Old Testament writ large are challenged, and we even have a brief back and forth where I get teased for attending Candler School of Theology, a friendly ribbing between divinity schools. So today we're looking at 1 Kings 17 through the rest of 2 Kings. Uh, essentially we're looking at the whole thing. And what's really fascinating about these books is they really focus on prophets uh, more so than kings. And we're going to see that in the discussion that we have later today. 1 Kings 17 through to 2 Kings 1, we see the Elijah cycle where the focus is on the prophet Elijah. 2 Kings 2, which contains one of the best stories in the Old Testament through to 2 Kings 13, is all about uh, Elijah's successor, Elisha, who happens to be follically challenged. And then 2 Kings 14 through to 18 really goats us up until the fall of Samaria, uh, which is going to be an important story, which our guest today is going to give us a lot of important context for, so we can better understand this story and how it applies to us in modern times and indeed to the readers at that time. The first thing is that uh, biblical books, uh, especially Old Testament books, do not have dates in the normal sense, right? So yeah. take, take a piece of like American literature, like Walt Whitman's When Lilacs Last in Dooryard Bloomed. Well, that's a poem that has a very specific date and it is tied to a very specific authorial purpose, it, you know, to eulogize Abraham Lincoln, Right. Mm. We know the date. The poem as it was composed never changed. It is what it is. It's assigned to a specific date, to a specific author. And we know what the author was doing when he specifically was thinking about writing this poem. Right. And so it's that is a that is a kind of literature that is you can pin that to a particular place in history. Right. 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 And historians love to do this with the Bible. And so they carve up a, 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 a book like Kings and say, this part was written here and this other part was written here. And then they um, map that onto a historical context that then becomes the explanatory key for uh, how the text means. The tendency among historians is to pin parts of the text or the whole text, the whole book of Kings, to a specific set of political historical circumstances during exile 
and then interpret the book that way. And what happens is, is that inevitably the book of Kings comes to, comes to mean something like it is a grand explanation for why we went into exile. It becomes a theodicy, a kind of explanation for this bad thing that happened. Right. And part of the reason that I say it's not is because I have a different view of how we how we should think about where texts come from and how they were composed. It turns out the biblical books don't have discrete dates the way that when lilacs last and dooryard bloom does. They have they're a spectrum of compositional activity, and so ultimately, these biblical books were written by theologians who are crafting scripture. At the end of the day, the compositional process has ordered these texts into whole biblical books, which are functional as a scripture for their reception communities, that the reception communities that the, that the scripture helps to generate and perform within those communities a liturgical function. In this, and what I mean by liturgical is that they help to organize worship and devotional life. They become sites for theological reflection and texts useful for orienting their readers to God and the worship of God. You could then say that the Book of Kings is making theological claims for an ancient community. And the and the exegete could go in there and sort of try and figure out what these claims are? Not only for an ancient community, but also all the way down to us. A, a scripture is designed not for one moment in time, but it's designed for a reception community that is per- self-perpetuating and ongoing. If I had a church and I was putting together a scripture for that church, I would hope the church would outlast me, right? <laughs> I don't know who's going to join the church after I'm gone. <laughs> I don't know what children will be born that will grow up within this community. Now, now certainly the Christian and Jewish traditions have probably far out outlasted, far, far outstripped the sort of imaginations of many ancient authors. But I would make the case that not only are ancient audiences the implied reader of the Book of Kings and of the Old Testament, but in fact, we are too. Both the Jewish and the Christian traditions are, in a sense, the the implied reader of the text. We are the religious traditions that the scripture generates or helps to generate. So is this when I was quick to be like, well, there's obviously not resurrection in this text. You know, Elijah and Elisha Mm -hmm. and their stories Uh, healing those two boys. That you would say actually there there is an understanding that that is a possibility of the way that God can work in a community. First of all, there are three I would call them three resurrections, three overt resurrections that are in the Book of Kings. In First mm-hmm. Kings seventeen with the little boy, Second Kings four with the second little boy, and then also in Second Kings thirteen, there's a man who's dead who's being yes. buried thrown into Elisha's grave and he jumps right out of the grave again. Those are three overt resurrections that take place in the Book of Kings. I'm talking about it less in a forensic sense and more as a theological concept of life following death, um, Mm -hmm. new life being restored from uh, the ashes of the old, that sort of thing. That concept is found everywhere in in the Book of Kings. The two children are as good as dead. Yeah. Uh, Their breath has left them. The man is certainly dead who gets thrown into Elisha's grave. And Hezekiah is as good as dead in 2 Kings 20, and then he prays and he's given a new lease on life. And all of those stories and many others in different different ways all sort of fit within a sort of paradigm of life from the grave that is running through the book of Kings from beginning to end. Take that theme then and help me through the kind of latter half of 2 Kings when we're getting the stories of what almost feels like a, a judge's cycle. 
of all the kings that are, you know, uh, you know, they did this, they did that, you know, they did the things that, well, if they're from the North, they did the things that the Lord despised. If they're from the South, for the most part, they did the right stuff, but still not great. They still burned incense, that kind of thing. Can you carry that theme then through those sections as well? The leading question in, in King's research is, uh, at a scholarly level is what on earth are the Elijah and Elisha narratives doing in the inside the book of Kings Yeah, as opposed to a book of their own called Elijah and Elisha. You can divide the whole book of Kings up into three parts. There's the this, this sort of first third, which you could say runs through about through first Kings 16 focuses primarily on Solomon mm-hmm. and then the sort of repercussion of Solomon's actions that results in a split between North and South 17 down through second Kings eight are the prophetic stories of Elijah and Elisha. And there are Kings that show up primarily Ahab and his two sons, Ahaziah and Jehoram, and also Jehoshaphat and Jehoshaphat's sons as well sort of show up in that middle part of the book. But it's, but the, the main focus has to do with these two prophets who are prophets of the north primarily. And they don't, they don't pertain to the south. So you've got a Judean Jerusalemite son of David who dominates the first third mm-hmm. of the book of Kings. In the middle, you've got two prophets. From the north. Uh, from the north who only rarely interact with anything having to do in the south. And then starting... In about Second Kings nine, we get sort of moved past those two prophets. There's a little bit more about Elisha in Second Kings thirteen, but by by Second Kings nine, we we deal with Jehu, the annihilation of Ahab's throne, and then Joash in the south, and you get a back and forth between north and south up through Second Kings seventeen when the north is uh, destroyed forever, and then it's just south, it's just southern kings, the the southern kingdom of Judah, all the way down until the exile. And so there's a marked difference between uh, what's happening in the, the first third, the middle third, and the final third of the book of Kings. If you took out the prophetic narratives in the middle, you'd kind of have a history of the kings of Israel and Judah, and there would be a distinct Southern Davidic focus. And it's also about Davidic decline in some sense, right? You've got uh, you know, Martin Notes, a famous biblical scholar, described the book of Kings as a, as a book characterized by quote unquote progressive decay. Mm. It's clearly a book that moves from a high point under David and Solomon to a nadir in Israel and Judah's experience in exile, right? Right, right. But the odd thing about Kings is the middle third of it is filled up with these prophetic stories of the famines and food surpluses of life and death, of resurrections of Sidonian children, the Shunammite woman. Like, what is all this material doing in the middle of the book of Kings? That's And, and if we can figure that out, that's the key to unpacking the sort of uh, rhetorical and theological coherence of the book as a whole. The whole book is written up from a perspective after the fact, right? right? It's constructed by people that come along after the very last thing that you read about in the book of Kings. The whole thing is shaped by those people. And the situation in exile that one reads about in Second Kings 25, the very last chapter of the book of Kings, is a situation in which the Davidic monarchy is removed mm-hmm. and the temple is destroyed. In other words, no longer do the people of Israel have access to these two vital institutions, 
both of those are stripped away. And the whole book is written up in light of that knowledge that they will be destroyed in the end. What's remarkable about the book of Kings, however, is that it doesn't simply narrate the destruction of those institutions as a cautionary tale. In other words, the book of Kings doesn't wag its finger at you and tell you to shape up or you too could be destroyed like You're the right. It, it doesn't Israel. have that it doesn't have that tone like Deuteronomy sometimes. It, it, yeah, it, it it really doesn't it really doesn't do that um, yeah. to, to its implied reader. And I think um, what's remarkable about the prophetic stories in the middle of the book is that the prophetic stories talk about God's activity in Israel under conditions that uh, that perfectly match the conditions of the end of the book when the two institutions have been stripped away. So the question is, how does God remain present and active among and loving and caring of his people, even when those pre-exilic institutions have been stripped away? What's remarkable at the, about the, the, the middle stories of the book of Kings is that the prophets Elijah and Elisha take on the character of some important aspects of Solomonic kingship and temple worship. When you read, for instance, in 1 Kings 18, with Elijah's on top of the mountain with the prophets of Baal, right? But if you look closely at the language of what he's doing when he repairs the altar yeah. of the Lord on the top of the mountain, and he does this at the, the quote-unquote time of the tribute offering, which I think is in about maybe about verse 30 or so. I can't remember. First Kings 18, 30. And mm-hmm. numerous other language, like 12 stones that represent the people in the altar. And then he uses vessel to pour water out as a sort of libation over on top of the altar. There's all sorts of language in First Kings 18 that matches the language of temple. It's, right. it's uh, of temple and priesthood. It's almost like Elijah in that moment, it's not that he has replaced or he is positioned over against. Actually, the temple is the template that helps us understand what Elijah is actually doing before the people. He's acting like a priest. Mm -hmm. The temple is what gives Elijah meaning in that story. And likewise, in 1 Kings 17, when Elijah raises the child from the dead, there are all sorts of really interesting lexical cues to help you associate you as the reader to associate that story with first Kings three, which is Solomon's premier example of wise kingship. When he threatens to cut the baby in half and he gives the living child back to the mother in first Kings 17, Elijah also gives a living child back to his mother. And so it's fascinating that the prophets, the prophets are uh, Elijah and Elisha represent a world where the Davidic kingship and the Solomonic temple have been stripped away. But what they're showing you is that, that the Davidic kingship and the Solomonic temple endow those stories with a theological paradigm so that they, they remain meaningful. Even in their historical material absence, they remain meaningful as theological paradigms. They give you, the implied reader, a way to continue thinking about and imagining God's care in a world where you no longer have access to a material Davidic king or a material temple. So this is not just a fanciful <clears throat> story, but for the implied reader, you're seeing someone other than what you would typically think of as a priest and where you would typically think about priestly things happening, doing mm-hmm. priest-like things and getting mm-hmm. a, favor- a favorable response from the deity. You can imagine yourself as the implied reader of this text. I, as the text, am summing up what the text is about to you. Okay. 
as you and I, as the implied receivers of this text, as we remember the pre-exilic world, as we remember the kingdom of David in Jerusalem and David's sons prior to what happened in 587 BC under the Babylonians, as we look back upon that, we know now that a material instantiation of kingship and temple have been stripped away and are no longer available to us. However, that doesn't mean that both of those institutions were failures. What the book of Kings shows me is that those institutions provide theological templates that the prophets embody. And those prophets show me that God can make a temple out of a widow's kitchen. So don't be afraid Don't be afraid that the temple and the kingship have been eradicated at a literal level. Mm -hmm. That's never what was most important about them anyway. They were always theological paradigms and they, they will continue to inform God's activity. They will be functional within this post-apocalyptic world, (laughs) this post-catastrophic world. Those paradigms of temple and kingship will continue to be viable theological paradigms. And God can can do this in really remarkably creative ways. God can God can produce food in, in in a world of scarcity. God can raise children from the dead in a world of death. This book is not a history lesson. Mm-hmm. This book is remembering the past, but it's not just recounting the past and offering an explanation for how things turned out this way. Memory, historical memory, becomes a site for theological reflection and devotion and worship. And I would say, although the book does finally move toward exile and destruction and catastrophe, because the prophetic stories in the middle of the book that surge up with so much joy and life and abundance and restoration, because they take place under circumstances that match the book as the book's end, those prophetic stories in the middle of the book are a kind of thought experiment, a way of saying, how is God going to maintain God's faithfulness to us when the institutions fail? God doesn't need a literal temple to do temple-like things for Israel. God doesn't need an actual political king to do the things in Israel that kings always should have done, which is restore children to their mothers, mm. right? Yeah, God, yeah, doesn't, yeah. God doesn't need a literal freestanding four-walled temple in order to make sacred space out of a widow's kitchen and protect her children from slavery. Right. In Second yeah. Kings 4, 1 through 7, like that's the charisma of those prophetic stories is they, they look forward to the end of the book and they say within those circumstances, God still moves and shakes and, and, and in surprising ways. I've never seen the book that way. That just makes, I mean, I'm not going to say that makes complete sense, but it makes a lot of sense. There are a few more mm. kind of hanging chads that I'm like, okay, but what do we do with like Josiah's, uh-huh. Josiah's reforms and you know, why like, well, or, or so, the overall DTRH, like, is this all part of the Deuteronomistic historians project or there is no thing called the, called the Deuteronomistic history, except in the head of scholars <laughs> as, as they hypothesize some sort of proto Bible. And in and the even, head of uh, first year seminarians who are, yeah, who have that beat yeah, into their yeah. heads. Yeah, exactly. We've been given these biblical books as liturgical scriptural documents within a living religious tradition. They deserve to be studied that way and understood within those traditions, right? Yeah. What's interesting about the second half of, of Kings is that the dichotomy between life and death, between good and bad, is teased out not with respect to prophets versus kings, but as different kinds of kings, mm-hmm. right? So you've got 
really good kings that attract superlative praise from the from the um, implied author of the book, like Hezekiah and Josiah. Right. And then you get really bad kings like Ahaz and Manasseh, who are worse than. I mean, they're they're unambiguously bad. They're just thoroughly bad, top to bottom. Right. Yeah. So the same sort of dichotomy, the sort of heaving back and forth between good and bad that was that was um characteristic of the of the dichotomy between life and death in the middle part of the book is now worked out in terms of these davidic kings in the latter half of second kings and what i think is really interesting is the way in which those that series of good kings is characterized and i would say namely the four most important kings are joash hezekiah josiah and jehoiachin the very last king what's interesting about their quote unquote goodness and their, the superlative praise that they attract is that they act on paradigm with the prophetic stories in the middle of the book. In 2 Kings 11 two, one of the sons of David, who is necessarily a widow's son because his father has been killed, the Davidic line is being killed off, right? Mm-hmm. A child who is a widow's son gets hidden away by a nurse in a bedroom, right. um, hide him so he's not killed. In the book of Kings... Never go in a bedroom. You're you're probably going to die in a bedroom, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. People true. are always dying on beds in the Book of Kings. David, right in the very beginning of the book, is oh. dying in a bed. Right? People get sick and die in beds, except for the children that the prophets raised from the dead in First Kings seventeen and Second mm. Kings four. Those are the exceptions. Those are the exceptions to the rule. And what you see here in 11.2, in 2 Kings 11.2, is that a Davidic king is being put on paradigm, on, on conceptual paradigm, with those resurrected children of, second, of 1 Kings 17 and 2 Kings 4. Now the Davidic kings, at least one strand of the Davidic kings, are playing the role of the resurrected child. And that's precisely what you see happen in 2 Kings 20, when Hezekiah is pronounced as good as dead, but then comes back from the dead. Right. Resurrection. Right. Resurrection is the key. Prophetic mm. resurrection is the key to the middle of the book under circumstances that prefigure exile. But it's also the key to not every Davidic king's experience. But one strand of the Davidic promise that is kept alive in a series of Davidic kings and you look at Josiah. Josiah doesn't undergo a resurrection, but he acts on paradigm with the prophets. Just like Elijah in 1 Kings 18, he gets rid of the prophets of Baal. Josiah does the same thing. There's a lot of similarities there. And then finally, Jehoiachin in, in 2 Kings 25, the last four verses of the book, is his life is preserved in the book of Kings. His life is preserved. He, he, um, his head is lifted. He's given a new lease on life. He changes his clothes to signify his ontological move from mm-hmm. death to life. And then literally the word life gets the last word in the book of Kings. It's finally life mm. that is the, is the final word in, in Hebrew. So the back half of Second Kings is you could say in a sense that the prophetic life typology in the middle of the book that comes from Solomon – Solomon's template that is sort of prophetized in the middle of the book is re-royalized in the second half of the book. It's poured into this particular strand of the Davidic dynasty. It doesn't show up in every generation, right? but there's always the potential within David's seed 
There's always the potential in David's dynasty for sons to rise up who will surpass their fathers, and particularly with respect to life preservation. I think my way of reading these texts has just been sort of, a, I guess I would say a broilerplate, sort of, okay, DTRH, you know, uh, putting it in a historical context and just sort of reading yeah. the history through it, reading it through that lens of history. Yeah. This well, you went a, to Kaling. Hey, hey now, <laughs> calm down. Uh, I learned from Brent Strahd, okay? <laughs> I know. Yeah, but he's a Duke man now. I mean, you, you should know and your audience should know that, you know, what I've just said here is um, not standard within the field. I mean, there's 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 a lot of people that would, disagree with me. There's, there's plenty of people in this world yeah. that would understand the book of Kings to be a, a historical theodicy. That is a historical explanation for why things wound up being bad. And they might also describe it as a kind of didactic preached history, a kind of lesson, uh, a moral lesson on why you shouldn't do wrong. And so you should know that I'm, I'm not in the majority in the, in the perspective that you just heard that, I mean, I'm certainly not in the majority, but I do think it's coherent. And I think it's actually more historically appropriate in the long run to understand these books as liturgical scripture, right. as opposed to a kind of history in the modern sense. They just, they just aren't. <laughs> they aren't functioning. And I get that. I get that. I mean, and, and part of me is thinking, well, yeah, I mean, of course, like that's why the author is always, or whoever's writing is always referring back to, well, of course, we've got the annals of the kings of Israel and Judah. We've got the history. Yeah, if you want to go read up. the history, go read the history. Exactly. I'm glad you picked up on that. The book of Kings itself tells you that it is not the annals of the kings of Judah right, and Israel. Right, right, right. But repeatedly, yeah. it tells you that if you want the history book, go read it. And yeah. as it turns out, the history book was not preserved. And that doesn't... Because it clearly not, wasn't as interesting. <laughs> exactly. Even if parts of it come from all different kinds of genres and contexts, what it has been rendered to be finally for its reception community is something, something I think ultimately way more interesting than a finger wagging history lesson. Mm -hmm. I think it, it's, it's a, a liturgical scripture it, and, and it helps me. Some days are kind of bland, but there's a lot of days where there's fire and lightning and the heavens are rolled back like a scroll. And I have to stop halfway through a passage and worship because I'm so struck mm. by the theological truth that the text is pointing me toward. And, and I hope that ultimately that will be your experience for your congregation as well, that they can enter into this text devotionally and worshipfully and find some theological resources there that point you to the living God. And that's what the text is all about. Thanks so much for joining us this week. As I was editing this episode, I had the privilege to listen through the interview probably three to four times. Each time I did, I got another bit of understanding from it. Daniel's work presented here is thoughtful and theologically rich. I drew particular hope from the idea that institutions like the temple in the Old Testament may be understood in some biblical books as placeholders for templates that God can use in other ways. For example, making a temple out of a widow's kitchen. You can find out more about Hyde Park United Methodist and The Bible Project by going to BibleProject2020.com. You can also join us online for worship Sundays at 9.30 and 11 at HydeParkUMC.org live. Chris Hockman produced this episode. I'm Matt Hotho. See you next week.